this morning is from Hebrews chapter 9, and we're looking at the Old and the New Covenants. I'll be reading from verse 1, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 23 from the NIV. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up, and in its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way to the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as the high priest of the good things that they are, they are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. 
In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. This is the word of God. Thank you, Ian. Uh, well, invite you now to turn to the book of Hebrews. Uh, we are working our way through this epistle, uh, this epistle which uh, I believe uh, had its beginnings as an oratory address. Uh, obviously, it was a letter that was sent uh, and eventually written down and communicated, but uh, there's many marks of this beginning as an oration. Uh, we are looking at this series, and we've given it the theme of seeing Jesus, and this really comes out of the way that the writer to the Hebrews lays forth the predicament that his audience is in. And just to remind you a little bit of what they're facing, uh, from the text we know that this is a group of people who became Christians a while ago, and their response to the gospel initially was very strong, it was very uh, fervent, and it was very passionate. They banded together, they suffered with one another, they grieved with one another, mourned, uh, they, they endured persecution. And some time has passed and they, they kept their faith and it's strong, but our speaker, or our author addresses the ones he's speaking to as a bit dull of hearing, lazy of hearing. In other words, they're getting a bit tired of the gospel. It feels a, a little samey. <laughs> And in this sort of attitude of complacency, the writer to the Hebrews is alternating really between these two, these two poles. On the one hand, saying, you need to watch out and you need to wake up. Be warned. And on the other hand, saying, the reason you need to watch out is because you have something that's fantastic, that is amazing, and that no one could ever really fully appreciate, and you're not really appreciating it right now. And where we find ourselves in the middle of this address is that he's trying to get them to see through spiritual eyes what Jesus is doing for them right now. What's the good of Jesus? And he says famously earlier in the letter, he says that, that we don't quite see everything subjected to us. We, we don't get to enjoy the full inheritance right now of everything that is ours in Christ. We don't see this yet, but we do see Jesus. And so that's why we've themed this series, Seeing Jesus. We want you to see Jesus. You will see him one day with your eyes physically. You will appear before him, but we want you to see Jesus right now. It's crucial for the church to have a vision of Christ, to understand who he is and what he's doing and what he means to us personally, how he's interacting with us in our lives. 
And while we may not be able to perceive the spirit of Jesus physically, we know that the spirit of Jesus indwells us because that same spirit is bearing witness to us. This whole book is trying to get this group of people who are feeling a bit complacent and dull to become focused and fixated again on Christ. We're in the middle of his main argument here, and he's leaning hard into that one tension of what we have, the things that, that are ours in Christ. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice, our perfect sacrifice. The language of sacrifice is not really comfortable in our day and age, is it? <laughs> I mean, aside from the fact that it's messy and it's gory, most of us don't go through life thinking that, that, that we actually need to atone for the things that we've done wrong. We, we don't actually go through thinking that there is a God who is holy and perfect and, and we need to therefore be reconciled to him and that it really is, is up to a death. There's something that needs to die to justify or to atone for the wrong that I've done. But this text, 9, 1 to 23, I think is going to help us. Now, just so you can sort of keep your place in where we've been and where we're going, last week we looked at 8, 1 to 13, which called us to consider two reasons why the high priesthood of Jesus is better. Jesus wasn't the first high priest. There was another priesthood. You can read about it in a number of places in the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular, as well as Exodus. But Jesus had a better priesthood because, number one, he served as a better minister, right? He's, just, he's, just a, he's got a better ministry. He's a better minister. Secondly, he mediated a better covenant. He was the uh, guarantor, if you will, of, of better terms, right? It's a better covenant because it was founded on better promises. And, and we talked last week about, you know, imagining two people standing at the altar and, you know, and, and, and you imagine them taking their vows and one says, well, I, I will love you forever as long as you do whatever I want. <laughs> you think, that's not really sweet. <laughs> Versus another set of couple that's making vows to each other and they say, look, I love you forever because that's my choice and, and, and unconditionally I will give myself to you. It's a better promise, isn't it? And so we saw that this ministry of Jesus, it's not just because he's a better minister, but it's founded on better promises. But the question that's raised by this passage is how clean is your conscience? How clean is your conscience? We have family staying with us, and, and uh, my, my brother-in-law has been extremely helpful. Last night, as we're trying to sort of get ready for Sunday, we got a big day today. As we're trying to get ready for Sunday, he's, you know, washing up the dishes, and he's, and he's doing things. And, and, and at one point, he, he comes, I hear this voice out from the bathroom, and he says, Hey, are you keeping these old toilet paper rolls for a reason? <laughs> And, well, there may have been a reason a while ago when the kids were two and three and you could say, hey, here's, here's some toilet paper roll. Why don't you tape it together and, you know, make something out of it and have a little fun craft project. But, you know, I got two high schoolers now and I can't tell you that we're really saving them for any other reason. <laughs> but he calls out and said, hey, can I get rid of these? And you know what? I totally forgot they were there. 
I just forgot they were there. And, and, and I'd said to him, you know, I'd said, look, you don't need to do that. Like, just, you're our guest. Just, just be, just relax. Just be there. And he said, I'm cleaning. I'm cleaning. Which raises the question, when are you done cleaning? Maybe you're married to someone who <laughs> has a different standard of cleanliness than you. And, 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 and they say, I'm done cleaning. And you say, no, no, this is, it's not clean. You have been in the process of cleaning. Yes, some things are clean. Yeah, but you're not done cleaning. No, in fact, it's not done cleaning until everything is clean. How clean is your conscience? It's kind of a false question. <laughs> Probably you should have said, is your conscience clean? Because it's not about degrees of kind of, it's like, well, I feel like my conscience is pretty clean. You know, I feel, you know, I feel okay. Yeah, I've done some bad things, but you know, I've done a lot of good things as well. And you mentally got this little, you know, I always imagine the guy in the prison cell in the cave, you know, Count of Monte Cristo, he's there. And you, you know, your conscience is sort of marking off like, okay, on this wall, I did a bad thing, but look at all this wall over here. And I've got all these tallies of good things. But is it actually ever clean? The simple truth that this text brings to us is that outward purity is not enough. You see, it's not enough to say, I'm going to go and look at, you know, my neighbor or my coworker or my spouse or my friend or, or, or you know, these people from school or this really, really, really empowered Christian leader. And I'm going to look at them. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm as clean as that person, well, then, then I'm clean. Scripture says that's not the basis of being clean. You're either clean or you're not. Paul brings this out beautifully in his letter to the Corinthians. He, he says, I don't care what you think of me. I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I don't care what you think of me. I don't care how you judge me. In fact, I don't even care how I judge me. A lot of us get on board with the first. You can't judge me. No, no, no. I don't care what you think. You can't judge me. But how many of us get on board with the second? I can't even judge me. My opinion of myself actually doesn't matter. Paul goes on to say, the only opinion that matters is what God thinks of me. And so we may even have an opinion on how clean our conscience is. Does God think your conscience is clean? Outward purity is not enough. The big idea today is that Jesus' blood cleanses us completely. I love what Pastor Stephen said in Sermon of Scripture this week. He said, the goal, Jonathan, should be that everyone walks out of this church so absolutely floored at the greatness of Christ because they've been liberated and released and cleansed. If you walk out of here with a burden on your back, you haven't heard me well or I haven't preached the gospel to you. I hope you walk out of here full of joy today. 
because Jesus' blood cleanses us perfectly. And so for us to see Jesus, it means that we've, we behold our perfect sacrifice. Our perfect sacrifice. The thing that we needed because it's not as if God looks at the past and says, eh, it didn't really matter. Eh. Past is the past. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's let sins be sins. And I'm just not really going to worry about that. That's not what God says. No. He says, the past happened. The rebellion happened. The sin happened. The lust happened. The greed happened. The fornication happened. The theft happened. The anger happened. The violence happened. All of that happened. And the justice will happen. So unless there is some other means by which those things that happened will be covered, then we're in deep doo-doo. But when we see Jesus, we see our perfect sacrifice. I want you to take a look at the context here. Within the foundation of Jesus' identity in place, that's what he's done up to chapter 7. He's been really reinforcing who Jesus is. With that in place, he's now moved to the main argument. And I, 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 really, I really like what Gareth Cockrell says. I'll, I'll show it to you in a second. But all of this is really trying to show you that, A, you need a priest. But more importantly, the priestly ministry of Jesus exceeds and excludes all other priests, all other ways of gaining access to God. And so as Gareth Cockrell says, this central section in chapter 8, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 18, in this main argument, as it were, it's sort of like a symphony with three movements, and each movement in the symphony has a part, has three parts. And so it, it really plays around these themes of the heavenly sanctuary, the true sanctuary. Secondly, the offering the sacrifice for sins, and thirdly, the establishment of the new covenant. So if you look at each movement within this section, you're going to see those three themes. You're going to see the theme of the true sanctuary. You're going to see the theme of offering the sacrifice, and you're going to see the theme of a new covenant. Same thing last week. You're going to see it again this week. But this week, this week, the focus is on the perfection of his sacrifice, the perfection of Jesus' self-offering to God on our behalf. Note what the Spirit of God is doing. Here, the Spirit of God is contrasting for us, through the Word, the temporary offering under the Old Covenant and the perfect offering in Jesus. There's a lot of details in here, but I don't want you to get lost in the details. The main heading, the main thing that's happening here is the temporary and the inadequate is being compared with the perfect and the permanent. The temporary and the inadequate is being compared with the perfect and the permanent. And Christ outlines the latter. Having shown this, we're going to consider the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice in four steps through the text. Four steps, first, the temporary sanctuary. Second, the temporary sacrifice. Thirdly, the perfect, Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And fourthly, our perfect redemption. I'm going to leave that on the screen. We're going to pray now, ask God to bless us as we go through this. I'll leave it on the screen if you're still taking notes and you want to write that down. This is a good time to do that. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the work of Christ. As we come to your word now, we come with minds that grow dull, with hearts that grow dark. 
And we need to be illuminated. We need to have the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can understand what you've done for us. And so, Father, that's my prayer this morning, that that would happen, that people would have clarity about the perfection of the sacrifice and the perfection of the offering. Lord, whatever your spirit needs to do in us beyond that, I pray that it would happen. I pray that people would be led forth from here free, knowing the sufficiency of Christ's blood. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We look first to the temporary sanctuary, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9. We see the earthly tabernacle is a copy of the heavenly. Now, I got my man on the slides in the back there. I might get him to throw up a picture while we're going through this. There should be a picture comparing sort of two, uh, two aspects of the temple. Can you do that for me? Thank you. There we go. Um, all right. So this is sort of a very rough just drawing, if you will, of the, the, how the temple was set up, okay? There's some slight differences between the way... Uh, we read it in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the way it reads in uh, the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the reason for this is likely based on grammar and language, and it's, it's really less precise in the Old Testament to know exactly, uh, and we have more specificity in the letter to the Hebrews. But what you need to see here is that there's two curtains, okay? There's a curtain on the outside, and then there's another curtain on the inside, the outside curtain separates the holy place, which is the whole inward, from the court, the courtyard, okay? Now, the courtyard had separations as well. Now, priests would minister be behind the first curtain daily. They would go into this area every day. That was a part of their ministry. They were to go in and they were there. They could only go into the second curtain, the most holy place, once a year on the Day of Atonement. But what we learn in this section, what we learn in this section, verses 1 to 5, he's really just sort of laying this out for us. So, sorry, you can't see it super well. Uh, if you want to, you can just Google it. I'm sure you can, you can find pictures online. Just Google setup of the tabernacle. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship. and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was erected. He's likely referring here to the wilderness generation. A tabernacle was set up, and its first room was the lampstand and the table with the consecrated bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain is a room called the most holy place. It had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. The ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, you may have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? It's, it's, uh, it was a box, really. Don't think Noah's Ark, which is huge. Think, think a box. And the box was made out of wood, but it was overlaid with gold. And there was a very fancy, ornate cover on top of that. And on either end of that cover was the uh, uh, golden replicas of the cherubim that God had said were to be constructed. And so these angels that surround the presence of God are represented here over the lid of the covenant. And in between the meeting place, God said his presence would come. This is where he would meet tangibly with his people. He would bring his glory there. That's why it's the most holy place. And it was God's presence there that was real, 
but also really dangerous if you didn't approach it properly. The place is called sort of the, the, the cover of glory, also can be called the mercy seat because that's the place from which they would receive the forgiveness, and it represented the presence of God. Also, we know, initially was put in there, was this jar of manna. Manna was the supernatural bread that God gave to his people as they traveled through the wilderness. The word manna means, what is it? And that's just what the people said when, they, when they, God gave it to them. They said, we don't know what this is, what is it? So they call it manna, and they would feed off this as they were journeying through the wilderness. Now, Aaron's staff that budded came in response to a rebellion. There was a rebellion against Aaron's leadership, and God told them to take the staves of every leader of the tribes, a representative leader of every tribe. So there were 12 staves that were sort of laid out in the presence of God. And each, each staff represented the leadership of that tribe. And Aaron's staff, when they came and looked the next day, it had sprouted, it had blossomed. And there were almonds that came out of it. And it was God saying to those people who had rebelled, he's saying, this is the one that I've picked. Aaron is your high priest. Stop rejecting him. So all these things were put into the Ark of the Covenant along with, and most importantly with, the tablets, which were the terms, the Ten Commandments if you will. And so notice that God met over this box which contained the decreed the, the decrees of the terms of his covenant. Here's the rest of that. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Would have loved to know what he had to say. <laughs> Would love to hear more about that. This is how the temporary sanctuary was set up. We're told it's a copy. It wasn't the original. It's just, it's just, it's meant to be a type, like a mini replica. Also temporary was the sacrifice. And by this we mean that the Levitical sacrifices had a limited effect. It's not that they, they had no function. They did have a function. It's not that they didn't work. They did work. The problem was they didn't work to the extent that they needed to work. What do we mean by this? Let's listen to the author. When everything had been arranged like this, here's the temple, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. Verse 7, but only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Now what this means is he brings blood in First, just so that he can be there. Then he goes out and he gets the blood of another sacrifice and brings that blood in, and that blood is to cover over the sins of the people. On the Day of Atonement, he's entering twice. First, with his own a sacrifice for himself. Second, with a sacrifice for the people. This was for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit. Now, here's, here's where the writer is telling us what all this means. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. What on earth does that mean? It's very important. It's very important. Yes, there was access. Yes, they could meet with God. But not everybody could meet with God. And they couldn't come whenever they wanted. In fact, something had to die for them to be able to go. 
And the death of that thing was never enough to sort of permanently open the access. The death of that thing was only good enough to last really for the day and then really for the year. And they had to come back and do it again. So I'm going to ask Chris to show again the, the, the other image that I had there is sort of two, two sort of lists comparing these things. This is from, these both from Coster's commentary. In the first tent, the outside, there's multiple priests. They're in there continually, and they're giving multiple sacrifices. But in the inner tent, in, in, the, in the most holy place, the high priest goes by himself once a year, offering a blood. The Spirit is saying, <laughs> yeah, you can come to God. Whoa, but most of the time you can't. And unless you're a high priest with the right offering on the right day, you're toast. Is this access? Is this access to the fullness of God's presence? No. It is access, though, but it's limited. Verse 9, this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order or the time of reconstruction, <laughs> the time of reformation is another way you might translate that. What's going on is that this ritual and this, this sacrifice has a temporary efficacy. It, has, it, it can cover the outside of the person, but it can't cover the inside. It can't cleanse them totally. It cleanses their bodies, but not their souls. It cleanses them in a physical way, but not in a spiritual way. Not in, a, not in the whole being sense. What was needed was a perfect sacrifice. Verses 11 to 14 show us that Jesus' sacrifice is perfect in every way. And you might say that this is kind of a high point for the letter to the Hebrews at this time. We read, when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. This is three verse, four verses worth memorizing, folks. Memorize these words. Preach them to yourself. Say them to your soul. You will need to know this because your conscience is not going to be satisfied with the ritual. Your conscience won't be freed in just the doing of the things. You need to know the full extent of what's been done for you for you to bask in being free 
for you to just know that the slate's been wiped clean. But let's go through this. The, 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 the key verse is 14 where he says, how much more? And so this is a typical argument from the writer. He's, he's doing a comparison. He's saying, if this did this, well, how much more has Christ done that? So in what ways is it greater? And, and I thought Coster put this well, a lot of commentators, great commentaries on this section. But it's, it's a greater because not only has he entered a holy place, but he entered the heavenly holy place, the most holy place. He, he's in the real tabernacle, so where he went is better, and what he brought is better. These things make Jesus' sacrifice better, and he doesn't bring the blood of some other animal, he brings his own blood. He's a human stepping in for other humans. Animals can't cover our mistakes. No matter how many sheep and goats you kill, it can't make up for you and I and the things we do wrong. It has to be someone who was like us, who could stand in the gap in our place. That's what Jesus has done. The result of all of this is that we can serve the living God. We're now released into worship. We're now released into ministry. You see, before only the priests were sent into ministry, it, it, was, sort of, it was sort of a covering for a period of time. It, was a, it only lasted so long. It made them clean in a ritual sense, but it didn't make them clean in a heart sense. They could now come to God. And so I bring up that question again, is your conscience clean before God? Is your conscience clean? It should be. If you receive what Jesus has done for you, if you say, yes, that's my savior, I, I follow him, he is my Lord. I accept what he's done on my behalf. I've, I've given up any other hope of knowing God and, and I've thrown myself completely at the mercy of God by pleading the blood of Christ. If you're trusting in what Jesus has done for you, then your conscience should be totally clean. Not because, <laughs> this is really important, not because of, well, I really trust him enough. <laughs> it's, not, it's not based in my confidence. It's not based on the sufficiency of my, my emotion of faith. It's based upon my confidence in the sufficiency of his sacrifice. You can only be perfectly clean by a perfect sacrifice. And if it's perfect, it means it only needs to be done once. It doesn't need to be done again. Now, what is the conscience? What is the conscience? The conscience is that part of our being that renders in, renders a judgment or a verdict on whether something is right or it's wrong. And the issue is that the conscience is not, it doesn't remain neutral. You see, the picture here is when we sin and after we sin, our conscience remains defiled. 
So if you decide to leave this morning and you're driving out and you, you just happen to prank someone's car on the way out and you think, oh, it's not a big scratch. I'm just going to drive off. You know, there's a lot of white cars out there. You think, you know what, everyone's got a white car. I'm just going to sort of scoot on out of here. That would be wrong. I think we can all agree about that. That's the wrong thing to do, okay? But let's say you just did it because you know what? We've all done wrong things and we all, we all make choices that aren't, that aren't right from time to time. Well, the Bible says in the making of that wrong choice, your conscience doesn't return to a state of neutral. Your conscience becomes defiled. It, it, it bears the corruption of that decision because that decision to be dishonest, to lie, and to cheat is a decision that brings about the wrath of God that puts people into condemnation and death. It separates them from God. And so that decision doesn't leave your conscience then saying, oh, well, you know, we just need to hit reboot. We'll just reboot the conscience, and then it'll go on. It'll be working fine. No, it doesn't do that. Have you ever stopped to wonder, why do we love children so much? What, why are we fascinated with, with, with kids? A lot of times people say, you know, I just love being around little kids because their innocence is so free. What they're not telling you is, my conscience is so stained and defiled. I yearn for the reminder of what it was before. We love and we're attracted to that innocence because we know there's something in us that just, is just not right. And when we've, we've made these choices, we've made these decisions, we've, we've shaken our fist at God or we've decided I'm not going to trust you with that or I'm going to walk in a different direction. And, and in, that, in that rebellion, we're not left in a state of neutrality where we can say, okay, on to the next decision, on to the next moral choice, on to the next faith act. No, we then are left with the, with the muck and the grime, literally the disease, the decay, the decomposition of our conscience. Why do people do the things they do? So often, the reason they make the choices that they make is because they're reacting in some form or another to their conscience. They're either trying to run from it, they're trying to compensate for it, they're trying to justify it. Maybe you know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and to rehearse in your mind the decisions that you've made. To try to turn back the clock and say, what if I'd done this, what if I'd done that? God says the answer to that problem is not in your hands. The answer to that problem is your conscience needs a wash. And not a one, not, not, not sort of just a, a picking up and putting away the dishes sort of wash, but, but it, needs, it needs a full cleansing. A cleansing that is so powerful that that it doesn't just clean us from the sins of the past or the sins of the present, but it cleans us for the wrong that we may do in the future. It needs to be a full status cleansing. And that's what Christ has secured. You see, he offered himself, he was unblemished, not merely 
in terms of his physical appearance. You see, in the old covenant, you could bring a lamb, and as long as the lamb didn't have any defects on the outside, it was fine to bring in for the offering. But Jesus is a better offering because it's not about the physical appearance and whether he had blemishes on his skin or his hair or his body, but it was about the unblemished nature of who he was in his thoughts and in his attitudes and in his emotions and in his relationships to the very core Jesus Christ was perfect perfect spiritually perfect emotionally relationally everything was right he didn't just look the part he was everything we were meant to be and to the extent that he even reflected the character of God of bearing, bearing the death out of love for those he made. This is what Jesus did. Notice he really went in to heaven. He went into the place where God dwells. And for this reason, he's obtained for us perfect, perfect redemption. Jesus' sacrifice cleanses us entirely for eternity. Cleanses us entirely for eternity. Now we're going to get the covenant language here in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. You see, now that sin has been dealt with, now that all our wrongdoing and rebellion has been rightly atoned for, has been rightly cleansed, well, that unlocks everything now. That unlocks now the, all the promises of God and the inheritance that he wants to share with, with men and women. Now eternal life is available. Now, now sharing in the glory of God. Now dwelling in his presence. Now, now the Holy Spirit in our lives. All this is now on the table because sin has been dealt with through Christ's offering of himself. You see, the Christian faith is so different from every other religion because the Christian faith is not about what you can do to get to God. It's about what God did so you could come to him. It's about what he did. Our confidence is not in ourselves. And Christ has obtained this redemption. Now we're going to get an analogy here in verse 16. That's kind of tough to convey in English. So the best way to say it probably is in verse 15, where it says covenant, and it's talking about the, 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 the terms of the agreement whereby God binds himself to another party, he binds himself to us. The word covenant there is the same word that the English translates as will here. It's because in the culture of the New Testament, when this was written, that idea of a covenant and a will could be encapsulated in the one term. So you might think of a settlement. The new covenant is, is a settlement between us and God. It says this is now going to be the terms of our relationship with him. But the new covenant can also be thought of a settlement in terms of it brings about certain benefits to us now, doesn't it? But that's this language of covenant and will. You need to know that the author is, is using a word play here. Because in his language, 
the, the two words can convey this, uh, the, sorry, the same word can convey two different ideas. Most people in Greco-Roman society, when they heard what we would call covenant, they heard a will, the thing you make out to decide what happens with your stuff when you die. So in 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is how wills work. The will says you get grandma's piano when she dies. If she's not dead, you don't get the piano. She may give it to you, but that's not a will. That's a donation. A will says, once I cease to exist, this is what happens. This is what you get. Now, you need to prove that they're dead. That's why we have death certificates. So that we can confirm. We don't have someone else walking around alive and someone trying to claim their stuff. 17, because a will is enforced only, as, only when someone has died, it never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And he's thinking here of the animals. So now he's, he's moving from their societal illustration into what happened when the tabernacle was set up. They used blood to, to purify all the elements when the old covenant was set up. He's saying like for like here. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, sprinkled the scroll and all the people. That's right. The people had to be covered with blood. Under the old covenant, at the, at the foot of Mount Sinai, when God said this is going to be the terms of our relationship, they too had to have blood put on them. And so, as one commentator has said, the blood functions as kind of a border between clean and unclean. Between clean and unclean is, is blood. Human blood can make you unclean if you were exposed to a dead body or a woman was, menstrua a woman was menstruating. In the Old Covenant, that would leave you outside the camp, but blood could also make you clean. So blood is kind of the, the border here. Moses covered all the people with blood as they were entering into this new relationship. Verse 20, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and everything that was in its, used in its ceremonies. Verse 22, in fact, the law requires nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so by the time we get to 23, here we are again. If it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the old tabernacle in, in the wilderness generation, to be purified with these sacrifices, the heavenly things with a better sacrifice than this. Blood bringing the cleansing. But I want you to go back and just see how remarkable this, this is, what the death of Jesus does here. The writer here says the death of Jesus unlocks the inheritance. Has anyone here been involved in a situation where you were, you were, you were supposed to inherit something? Oftentimes with a will and an inheritance, there's a lot of squabbling, isn't there? There's a lot of fighting. You've seen it in movies. I know families that have broken apart over this. I know, I know people who, who used to gather 
multiple times a year as family. But then when the older generation passed away, they didn't gather anymore because they're fighting over the will and what and who gets what. Now I want you to imagine for a moment that, you know, your granddad dies and he says, I'm going to give the family 10 million bucks. And I'm going to give it to them in, you know, this particular way, in this particular order. But then one of the family members comes along and says, you know what, that person doesn't deserve to get it. They shouldn't get that. Where were they during his sick days? Where were they when they needed help? I was the one who was taking care of them. I was the one who was doing this, doing that. And they say, that person doesn't get anything. They lived in another state. They, they shouldn't get anything. And this squabble happens. Now I want you to imagine, in the midst of this fighting, in walks Grandpa. You'd say, that put an end to the argument, wouldn't it? You see, the problem with a will is the person who wrote it is dead. And they can't, they can't enforce it. They leave it to the law courts. But what's so amazing about Christ is the very inheritance that he unlocks with his death, he mediates to us through his resurrection. You see, the very inheritance that we receive because he died, we can be sure we will get because he lives. He wrote the will, his death unlocked the riches for us, and he came back from the dead to make sure that everyone gets it. He ever lives to intercede for you. He ever lives to plead for me. So you may be sitting in your chair this morning or your, your lounge, wherever you're sitting. You may be sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, am I really, really going to stake my whole life and my whole eternity on this crucified Nazarene? Am I really going to stake everything on that? That happened so long ago. That happened so, so far away. I don't even know the culture. I don't even know how this all happened. Here I am 2,000 years later. Am I really going to put everything on that? You might be thinking, what if it changes? How do I know? How do I know they got it right? The testimony is not just that Christ died for you. The testimony of the church, the, te the reason the church has exploded across the world is not simply that Christ died, it's that Christ rose and he lives. And in his living, he is presiding and he's reigning and he's releasing and distributing his inheritance. As Psalm 110 says, the Lord said to my Lord, come sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What God is doing right now is he's working out the enemies from the family. But all of this is being consolidated under Christ who lives and reigns. He proved it in his death and he justifies us through his life.
Now, it's a bit confusing to try to understand why does heaven need to be purified? Ah. People usually run this argument in one of two directions. Either, either they say, look, we don't know why heaven has to be purified, but what we do know is there's this connection between what happened in the earthly tabernacle and what happens in the heavenly tabernacle. So if it had to happen there, then it has to happen there, and we just take God's word for it. We're not told why. The other line of reasoning says that the copy of the heavenly things need to be purified because we become the sanctuary. Where does God dwell? With his people. Why is there no temple in John's great vision of Revelation? Why did the curtain tear when Christ died? Because in God's kingdom, he dwells with his people face to face. We become the sanctuary. And so some have seen in this Christ's purification of us. As we're brought to heaven where God dwells, as heaven meets earth, the new Jerusalem comes down. God is dwelling with his people. In this, we are the furnishings. So, this, chapter, this section of the text reminds us that Jesus Christ's sacrifice cleanses us perfectly. But what you need, what is the purpose of this cleansing? You need to ask that question. What, why was I cleaned? Why did Jesus die for me? We're told within the text, we have been washed to be worshipers. You see, under the old covenant, it was, it was a, an outward cleaning of the body just so that you could continue to call God your God. There wasn't, the people of Israel weren't all worshiping. Only certain people could worship. And the only person who could get close to God's real presence was the high priest. And that wasn't even the fullness of his presence. But now everyone who participates in the new covenant, everyone upon whom the blood of Christ is put, everyone whose consciences have been cleansed, we are now all released to be worshipers. This is the purpose of your life. He said, I didn't know I was going to come to church and someone's going to tell me the purpose of my life. Well, guess what? That's what we did. That's where we're ending. This, this is why. All of this happened so that you could freely go to God and say, God, here I am. I give you my life. I trust you completely. I know that you love me and I know you will provide for me. And everything that I have, I lay down for you. And I do it freely. And I do it without thought that you're going to punish me or reject me because I know you've cleansed me. Here I am, your clean vessel. God, I give my life to you. That's why Paul, after going through all that theology, it comes up to Romans 12, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, in view of God's wrath, no, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of service or worship. He <laughs> said, Before you leave today, I want you to look around this room. 
I want you to look around this room and I want you to see that these are people who were made in God's image, that Jesus' death has cleansed them, and that God is inviting them into worship. And so the writer is saying, given all this on offer, why? Why would you turn away? Why would you give up this priest? Do you know why you were cleansed? What would it look like for you to worship God? I'm not saying you're not. I'm saying, let that be the question that drives you. Don't let the question of, how am I gonna try to scrub my conscience clean? How am I gonna get my, my view of myself right? Don't. Your life will get so sidetracked trying to justify yourself. Accept that Christ's blood justifies you and then give yourself in worship to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you enrich us? Would you build this fellowship? Will you, through your Holy Spirit, empower us to, to reflect the glory of Christ to one another? Glory, Lord, because it's what you deserve and because it's who you are. Lord, and to one another because we know we're transformed when we see Christ. So, Father, would you banish every doubt and every fear and every discouragement this morning, and may we rest in the sufficient offering that Jesus has made for us. For now and always, amen.